Okay, so on this week's episode, we are continuing with the Masters of the Craft format where you're interviewing friends of yours. Uh, again, this week is somebody who has been a friend of yours, and I, I think Willow was even a student at one point. Um, can you set up who Willow is, her work, and, and anything we should be looking for from an audience perspective? Willow, so I met, well, she was a student. Here's what's great about Willow. There's a million things that are great about Willow. I can't, <laughs> yeah. she's, she's a, just a really um, on top of it, uh, s- smart, uh, kind, amazing human being. But uh, what, when I first met her, she took a class I was teaching. She was already a professional writer. She was writing comic books and, and she was already a professional writer. Not that many professional writers will take a writing class. Um, and that tells you something about her and yep. her, um, how good she wants to be at the craft and how she can humble herself enough to go, I'm going to sit in this. She didn't know me. I'm going to sit in this guy's class and I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Um, uh, I, I feel uh, uh, I'm lucky that she found things she could use. Um, and I, I think she did. I think she uses some of that stuff, but she, uh, she has done, she, she wrote uh, Ms. Marvel uh, and it was the first Muslim woman superhero. Um, yep. And, and that did very well for her. She's written awesome. novels. Yeah. She's, yeah. She's done well with her novels. She's done well with her comics. She's um, she's 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 very good. She's very smart um, and introspective in a really great way um, and observant in a really amazing way. Um, yeah, I I think that we are lucky to have her voice um, out there doing things. We're lucky to have it. Um, and uh, I, I feel, you know, I've been so lucky the people I've gotten to know and meet and work with or teach. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing. And she's, she's, she's right up there, one of the most uh, amazing people I've been lucky enough to have in my class uh, and to know. I think people will get a lot, will get a lot from uh, hearing how she thinks. Yep. It's just so fun to watch artists that, take their craft so seriously so this week's episode let's see what will has to say hello and welcome to you are a storyteller masters of the craft a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker brian mcdonald in this episode brian is joined by award-winning comics writer and novelist g willow wilson author of cairo a lift the unseen and Miss Marvel. G. Wilson shares the path that led her to her fruitful career, starting with teaching English in Egypt, and most recently writing a novel about watchmaking, and why she delights in the notion that writing stories is similar to solving a mathematical equation. Let's talk a little bit before we get into the, uh, let's, I do like to get a little bit of, uh, of a biography. So, uh, can we, t- like, when did you get interested in writing? Were you one of those people always interested in writing or storytelling or some, how, what, what happened? Tell me about Willow. <laughs> uh, yes. In, in a word, I, I was one of those kids who always had a book or a comic book in my hand. Um, I liked to, when I was watching a TV show or a cartoon, 
sort of write ahead in the story. I mean, I was essentially writing, you know, what we would call fanfic now, although I didn't have a word for it back then. This is kind of mm -hmm. pre-internet. Um, and uh, so storytelling, writing books uh, were, were all hugely important to me as a kid um, because I, I kind of was a bit of the archetypal awkward child <laughs> mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, I spent, I spent the first 12 years of my life always being the tallest girl in my class by a lot. And then I sort of hit age 13 and stopped growing and everybody else started. And so now I'm just sort of average size. Uh -huh. um, you know, I have strabismus. And so I had wonky eyes that kids loved to, to comment on, uh, you know, in the way that kids do, uh, yeah. you know, in sort of elementary school age. Mm -hmm. And so there, there, there were certain things that felt kind of inescapable to me and in books, in, in cartoons, TV shows, comic books, uh, you can live other lives and learn other lessons. And uh, so, so those were very, very important to me as a kid. Um, I, I want to stop you for and, just a second because yeah. there's something about, I think, almost every creative I know has some, and maybe everybody does, but creatives have a way of tapping into it or using it, which is um, an outsider status of some kind seems to make people yeah. very creative, right? Like, oh, I was tall and everybody, like it, it makes you an observer in an interesting way, I think. You're never in the middle. You're never the central character. You're, you're yeah. on the outside narrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think in the end, it ends up being very valuable for creative people. It also, I think makes them more empathetic often. Yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I'd like to think that that's true. <laughs> I, not all creative people are that empathetic, but I, but, but, I think, I, but, but I think that in order to write characters well and all of that, you, you do have to be empathetic. Um, yeah. You, you know, but, but anyway, I'm, I didn't mean to, to stop you, but I, I thought that was an interesting. No, I, I think that's an interesting point. I hadn't ever thought of it in quite that way, but I, I think you're right. There's, I, 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 when you look at, not all, but, but certainly a lot of, you know, writers who go on to, to sort of get biographies so that we have a glimpse into their, their early lives. There is something that does set them apart and they, and they feel like they're, they're sort of never, you know, it's, it's, some of them are the popular kids and, and the rich kids and the beautiful kids. I mean, you get the Fitzgeralds. Right. right. You know, um, but then you get, you know, the E.M. Forsters who... Uh, even after he got famous, was referred to by his friends as the mole. And, you know, was this awkward, skinny, orphan, you know, guy who, uh, yeah, who, who was hanging out and lurking in libraries. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think there is something to that, that sense of being an observer rather mm -hmm. than being a participant early yeah. in life. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. So, I'm sorry, but uh, you, so... Uh, what did you say? You so they uh, people. You you're average right now. People kept going. Yeah, everybody else. Yeah, yeah, I'm no longer tall. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, my dad wanted me to play basketball, and that never panned out. Oh yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> what are you gonna do? And 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 actually, where where were you growing up, by the way? Uh, so I was born in Monmouth County, New Jersey. We lived there until I was 13, and then moved to Colorado for my dad's work. And so I went to high school in Boulder, Colorado, and then went back east for college. 
okay. uh, in Boston and then moved to Cairo after that, where I lived for five years. And mm-hmm. now I'm in Seattle. So I've been, been in a lot of different places. <laughs> yeah. That, well, that, that's often helpful too for creative people. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you hear that a lot actually. Oh, I was an Ernie kid or I was a, there's a, I don't know what that is, but um, that also makes you an outsider. I think when you move a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it can. Yeah. Yeah. People well, now are... You have to observe every culture is an interesting thing because I think culture, we often think of culture in terms of um, countries or religions, but it's way more complicated. And I think culture goes from like, you can have a, a country can have a culture regions in that country can have a culture. Um, Towns can have a culture. Towns, t- neighborhoods. Neighbor, yes, absolutely. And, and homes. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right, right, yeah. Right. You know? True. Yeah. And so I think whenever, I remember the first time as a kid going to somebody's house, you know, kind of on your own, like a friend's house, and they eat dinner at a different time, or they watch TV or don't watch TV You're or like, whatever. Whoa. Yeah. Going everything, on. like, blows your mind because you only have one. Frame you know, reference. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, they do that, you know? Um, and so uh, you have to learn and adapt to that culture. And so I think that when you move around, there's also that, you know, like, oh, this is, we don't we frown on that in this culture or we're all about that, you know, like if you go. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. And I remember when I, when I moved from New Jersey to Colorado, I had a huge culture shock in central New Jersey where I lived. Um, it was extremely multicultural. My school was about maybe 40% Eastern European Jewish. Most of my teachers were, uh, you know, Jewish from that extraction and the rest were um, South Asian and East Asian. So uh, Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi, Taiwanese, Chinese, uh, Vietnamese. Um, And I moved to Colorado and the town I was in was just overwhelmingly white mm-hmm. um, and fancied itself very liberal. Like, you know, like the, it's, it's, you got the sense that, you know, people would rather drink bleach than say, you know, a racial slur. But, but at the same time, there was this refusal to, to sort of grapple with the fact that it was homogenous in right. any yeah. way. And, you know, when my high school sort of crept over like 15% Latino, 10 or 15% Latino. So we're talking about still overwhelmingly white. So like right. 90% white people started talking about white flight and I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, and it was very strange because in New Jersey, there was, it was, it was much more Frank, you know, like there was sort of a lot of, um, you know, like kids would tease each other a lot, uh, you know, about, food and accents and all this kind of stuff but it but it was sort of it was they were more or less on an an equal footing because it would be you know Chinese kids and and kids from uh, you know uh, the subcontinent and stuff like this so they were working from similar experiences you know even if they didn't come from the same culture they they'd they'd been through similar experiences of immigration Mm -hmm. and integration and so a lot of this stuff was just sort of on the table. And then, you know, like in Colorado, uh, it, it, was, it was overwhelmingly white and nobody wanted to talk about it. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. 
Nobody wanted to talk about it at all. So it was, it was very strange. And yeah, I mean, I was like, gosh, in any other part of the world, these would be two different countries. You know, like mm -hmm. the, the fact that this entire continent is, is one country when really it is totally different cultures yeah. is wild. If this was like Europe or Asia or anywhere else, we'd be about like 10 different countries. <laughs> oh yeah, it's true. Which is actually one of the, uh, when I, uh, I'm not one to defend America too much because we, you know, have a lot of problems. But uh, one of the things I defend us on is our inability to speak uh, different languages. Yeah. People make fun of us. But in Europe, you're surrounded by other languages in a different way. Right, you way. drive an hour and a half and they're speaking a different language. So right, you kind of yeah. have to adjust. You could drive for a week here and we're all speaking. You know what I mean? Like, yes, you know, yes, you, yes, so yes. yeah, we're not really bored. We're bored about Canada. They speak English, right? Some people speak French, but essentially they speak English. And, and, uh, and then down at the, at the Mexican border, you find more people who speak Spanish on that, in that, those areas. But essentially that's, that's it. Those are the countries we have next to us. Right. So, so, you know, it's, it's different in Europe. And so I, I think that we, we get a bad rap. I think that uh, if Europe was, uh, if the countries in Europe were as big as this country, were as big, it I would they, it would be a different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. think so too. And we don't we don't uh, so you know whatever our problems are, I think that's that particular thing is just a ge geographical thing. It's not a you know, yeah, yeah yeah. It's, it's it's there's literally Canada and Mexico and two oceans, mm -hmm. and and that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's uh, you know. It's, so it's, yeah, the, we have some of the longest longest. Um, non-militarized borders in the world, apparently, which I did not know oh, well, until uh, <laughs> until our current political situation made it an issue. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay, so you moved to to uh, to Colorado. You moved, okay? So, um, and were you you were still always writing or observing or at this point? No, I in in high school I became kind of a massive goth and, and kind of found my people. Um, I got super into Sandman okay. uh, and, uh, you know, The Cure and uh, Sisters of Mercy and, and wearing sort of pseudo-Victorian clothes and fishnets and things. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking that, that I was sort of, you know, that I was, I was kind of kind of fly my, my freak flag. But then I discovered that there were all of these other people who were into exactly the same things. And, um, and so, you know, like socially for me, that was like a big, a big what? It, it, was, it was very different. I was like, yes, I, I, I found people who are like me, who mm -hmm. love to, you know, read poetry by rivers and whatnot. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that was, that, so that was, uh, that was that was very different and, and and pretty cool and I have to say that I'm to this day still friends with uh, with a lot of people that uh, I met in high school. Oh, um, cool. So something stuck, even though uh, very few of us still wear all black and recite poetry by rivers or anything. Like that, so. <laughs> got, got things to do now. It's not as yeah yeah, yeah adulthood set in yeah, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but yeah but it was it was pretty different. But I did keep writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I wrote sort of like a whole novel that was loosely based on the Vampire the Masquerade 
uh, tabletop role-playing game. And at the time I was like, this is so dumb. Who wants to read novels about vampires? And I checked the whole thing. Hmm. Uh, you know, and then like uh, six years later, Twilight came out and I was like, oh, such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did that teach you? Uh, you know, it, it's don't, don't throw stuff away prematurely, I think. Uh, you know, like I, I think there's always one person who's the one who's like, I'm going to make vampire literature, you know, a thing again. And everybody thinks it's dumb until they do it. And, uh, you know, like same thing with Harry Potter or any of this stuff. You, if you had heard it pitched to you five years before it came out, you'd have been like, that's a little weird. Or who's going to read that? Or I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. Uh, and, you know, and then it comes out and it makes a bajillion dollars. Yeah. And everybody has their lunch eaten. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember I was, I was trying to, uh, to break into comics in a significant way, which never really happened, but, but I was trying to break into comics and, and I remember uh, it was at a time when the comics, comics were pretty bad. They were in a bad uh, place because um, once Im image started, it sort of, did this thing to the industry where everybody was just putting out books to try to compete with them and take up shelf yeah. space. And so a lot of the comics were, were not very good. And, and I think one of images issues at that time was, it was really telling to me, they, they, all of those artists who left Marvel to start image because they thought, you know, the reason I'm, the reason the book is popular that I'm on is because I'm the star, right? I'm the artist. Not one of those artists took a writer with them which I found fascinating. They didn't think that's that the writer had it. Yeah. Right. You know, I yeah. Never, yeah. 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 That's so, so they just thought it's all about me. Right. So, so, uh, but what happened then is that the stories weren't good. Yep. And so it, it came out with a lot of fanfare Ooh, image, but then they, they, they sold a lot of books and they got a lot of buyers, but they didn't get any readers. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's an important distinction. You know, like when that bubble burst, yeah. I, I think there were hard lessons to be yeah. learned. <laughs> yeah. And so, but my point is, I remember when, um, uh, after that, and people said, or right around there, uh, they were worried about people buying comics and kids buying, and they were saying, people said, oh, people, kids aren't reading comics because there's so many other things to do. There's video games and cable and blah, 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 and DVDs or whatever it was at the time. And I was like, I, I said, no, it's because the comics are bad. And they were like, no, it's because there are all these other things taking their attention. And I'm like, no, the comics are bad. And then Harry Potter came out and kids were reading like crazy. And yeah. I was like, yeah, see, that's not, it's not. They will read if you give them <laughs> something to read. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I hear the same talk now, mm -hmm. right? Well, it's the video yeah. game. It's, the, it's like, no, it's the quality of the work. It's always yep. the quality of the work. That's I 100% I agree with you. I, I agree with you. It's uh. And, you know, I, I think in many ways, not just with books for kids, we're learning the lesson that the audiences are there if you make stuff for them to read. <laughs> right. You know, when yeah. people are like, oh, this group of people doesn't read, kids yeah. don't read, these people, I'm like, could it be possibly <laughs> you are not publishing books aimed yeah. specifically at these audiences? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and that if you were to do so, they would pick up a book, you know, what a novel concept.
Well, the other um, thing too, yeah, I think that that's true. And the other thing is when they often when they try it, it's not a genuine attempt, right? So yes, you know yeah, what I it's mean. Hand waving. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like like hey, we have a black character, for instance, but everybody involved in writing these black characters is white and drawing them is white, and so we don't. It's not a real attempt because yeah. what happens is. Um, these are people now writing from the outside of an experience versus the inside of an experience. Guessing. Yes. And you can feel it. Mm-hmm. You can feel the, that it's inauthentic. Yeah. When yeah. S- when somebody tries to write you and they get it wrong, you know. It's, it's, it's painful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really true. And, it, you know, I, I think it's a desire to capture audiences without having to change anything about the structure of the organization. Right. Because right. that's a lot of work. Yeah. And, you know, that raises painful questions. <laughs> it does. Like, oh, why did this organization become so homogenous? And does that make us bad people? And, and then, yeah, and then it's awkward when you bring somebody else in. existential. Yeah. It yeah. does. Yeah, it does. So it's like, why don't we just leave everything the same and just ch- rearrange the furniture a little and bit? And rearrange the furniture a little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, that won't work. And then it doesn't work. And they go, see, it didn't work. We tried. So yeah, did, oh, well, we'll just go back to doing teeth yeah. and small feet. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Oh, my God, I'm getting in so much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can cut anything you want to cut. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I think a small subsection of people will, will know what that refers to. <laughs> okay, all right. All right. And uh, so it's okay, yeah. Okay, all right. So how did you eventually end up? Uh, did you have an idea of what you wanted to write or that you wanted to do it, pursue it as a career or what, what happened there? Yeah, I had, um, there, there were definitely stories I wanted to write, but most of them were things that I knew I would have to work up to. Um, and that sort of, you know, earlier in your career, it's, it's kind of take what you can get. Uh, and, and so early on, I just sort of did a hodgepodge of things, um, in order to, in order to just sort of be working, um, and, you know, had a lot of sort of things that I wanted to do, stories I wanted to tell, characters that I wanted to work on, uh, you know, sort of in comic books, and, uh, but I, I knew that there's, there's a process, and, uh, one of the most valuable things that I think I learned early on was if, if you want to work in, for example, shared universe scenarios, like in comics, um, you have to sort of learn to take the B-list characters, the C-list characters, and, and write the kind of story that you want to write, something that uh, you would want to read, something that sort of shows or highlights something you think that you do particularly well, instead of just being like, well, nobody cares about this character. You know, because right. that, you know, that's kind of the challenge, is, is, is sort of taking this character that everybody's like, well, who, who cares about this dude? And making a story that catches your interest or that takes an aspect of that character um, that is somewhat unexpected or, mm-hmm. or that hasn't been highlighted before and to, and to tell a good story about it. And mm-hmm. um, so those skills that I picked up early on doing those sort of fill-in issues or, you know, miniseries with, with lesser-known characters, I think, um, have, have served me well because it, it does force you to focus on craft in a big way sure uh it's it's not just wish fulfillment it's okay how do i how do i make this thing good <laughs> sure yeah I have, a, I have a question about you working because yeah 
I found it nearly impossible to get into comics. Like, I'm, st- I still, I want to read, I want to read your comics. I, oh. <laughs> I bring your name up. No, I do. I was like, you know, people ask and I say that the best storytelling class I've ever taken in my life is this dude. This is the guy you want. So it's, it's, we're going to make it happen somehow. Oh, some well, way. thank you. It's okay. I mean, I, I'm all right, but, but, uh, but I spent years trying to, to break in and I mean, I occasionally, I, you know, and now I'm doing these graphic novels and I feel okay about that. But, uh, you know, I wanted a monthly book. I tried for years to get one. But I was never able to do it. But at that time, and I don't know what it's like now, women and minorities, there was no room for nope. women and minorities in comics. I mean, if you look at the graph, if you look at the actual numbers, the statistics, it's appalling. Um, it's, it's almost... That doesn't happen by accident. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's too, like, it's really out of whack. And yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I had such a hard time getting anybody to take me seriously as a writer in comics, uh, to pay attention to me. I noticed that when I pitched something, they would try to figure out what was wrong with it, not what was right about oh, it. Oh, God. You, you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. And s- triggering flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, <laughs> And, and uh, so with, with people of color and with women, it's a really hard business. It's hard to break in. Uh, they don't take you seriously and they don't want you there, you know? Yes. And, and um, it's not something I expected in comic books. You know, you read a comic book and it seems somehow all inclusive and right. But it, it wasn't like that at all. So I'm, yep. I'm always curious about how you got in, how that happened, what happened, what, because it's, it's, it's almost impossible to do. It's almost impossible. And, and I'll tell you what, what it was. In my case, it was I was lucky enough to have a pitch land in front of women. No. Okay. <laughs> um, I was mentored by two of the best female editors in the business, Karen Berger at Vertigo and Joan Hilty at DC, who actually came back to Vertigo to, to edit a couple of things that I did. And she herself had started out as Karen's assistant editor. Um, and Karen, you know, I'm working with Karen right now uh, on a Burger Books book at Dark Horse. Um, she, of course, spearheaded uh, Sandman and all the John Constantine stuff, the Hellblazer stuff, Lucifer. Uh, you know, the old school swamp thing, you know, books back when they were sort of hardcore goth. And um, so she, she was one of the big name women editors in the industry. And, and you looked at the people that she mentored and it looked like the real world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there were, uh, you know, like women and black people and uh, you know, other people of color and, she and I, I don't think that she was sitting down and being like, okay, I'm going to do a diversity push and find these people. She just wanted to find the best, most unique, most interesting stories that had not hit the comic book scene yet. Yeah. And so that's how, and so she naturally landed with this, you know, more diverse group of, uh, of talent. And um, I think if I had tried to go another route, sort of more, the, the more traditional, straight to superhero route, that would not have happened. Yeah. Um, because there are those barriers to entry. 
And it's, it's because in large part, this industry is very opaque with, mm -hmm. with traditional publishing. Um, there are severe barriers to entry, uh, you know, to people who have non-traditional educational backgrounds who don't have access to things like internships that don't pay very well. So those exist, but the application process is fairly standardized to get, for example, uh, an agent, like, you know, you, you submit your manuscript with a pitch letter and a cover letter, you know, you send it out to 10 or 15 people, you wait for them to write back, you know, three quarters of them will say no, one will say maybe, some will not write back. And you do that until somebody says yes, and then they turn around and pitch your book to a publisher. So there's, there is at least a process that is, you know, even if, if there are hidden trapdoors and prejudices and barriers to entry, the process is standardized. Mm -hmm. In comics, it's much more like Hollywood. It's all who you know, it's your networks, it's word of mouth. There is no standardized pitch process. There's no open submissions. Right. I'm making a blanket statement. There are no. smaller publishers sure. who do that. But sure. for the big two, for the stuff that people have heard of, your, your DC Comics, your Marvel, stuff like that, it's closed. It's a closed loop. And so the only way until very recently and still to a large extent that you can get in as a new person uh, is through an established creator. And so they go to their friend networks and it, it doesn't occur to a lot of people, I think, that their friend networks are very homogenous. Right, um, I think that's true. So that's how you end up with a panel that is five white men named Brian. Right, right. I'm, right. I'm, that is I, that is not an exaggeration. I've been on panels <laughs> where there are more, and I love all of those Brian's. I, I get it. Know, it's not about say, that. It's not. Oh about my god! That. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I get at it. least it's it's like, uh, you know, it's it's, and they're wonderful dudes. But like, I've been on a panel that was Brian Bendis, Brian Azzarello, uh, Brian K. Vaughn, and me. You know, like, <laughs> right. you know, so there's, there's literally. So yeah. you know, it, it's it's, and I think. But I'm a Brian, and I wasn't there. Yeah, right? you're a Brian and you weren't there. You like you you're yeah. a Brian and you weren't there. Yeah. And nobody looks around. I think it took a real reckoning for people to say, "Oh my god." You know, we we literally it literally never occurred to them how homogenous that, yeah. that was because and, to them that was what their life looked like. Right. Exactly. And nobody I won't say nobody because that's not true. <laughs> I don't, we always caveat things. <laughs> right. Yeah, we do. But mostly, oh, on the internet. mostly, I would say that people aren't doing these things on purpose. They're not excluding people on purpose. They're not, you know, nobody talks about it. Nobody says those people can't work. They're here. not you rubbing know? their hands together and saying, who can we exclude today? But it amounts to that. You it know, doesn't like make that, any difference. They could be doing that. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, as, as the kids say now online, it's, it's the intentions don't matter if the outcome is the same. Right. So whether you were doing it to be devious and, you know, white supremacist or because you just didn't notice, the outcome is exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, what difference does it make? Well, and it so, does not make a difference. Uh, and I will say, I, I know for a fact there, there were people who were purposely doing it. I know for a fact. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's that. There is that. It's, it's not that that doesn't exist. It's just that for the most part, people are cool and they just they have no idea. They're oblivious to it. They, they, they simply don't notice. They yeah. simply don't notice. Yeah. And yeah. 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 It's uh, it's it's a real thing.
It is yeah. a real thing. <laughs> the other thing that happens often is that um, you get ghettoized, right? So you can only write, even though uh, I was just talking to somebody about uh, Wonder Woman, for instance. Wonder Woman spent most of her existence being written by men, right? Mm -hmm. But for the most part, when women get into comics, they don't get to write male characters as much. So it's like, well, we're going to put you on the woman book. It's like, well, can I write the, the girl books? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you get sort of ghettoized and they're like, okay, even though we've been doing this for years, we're not going to let you cross over. You're going to stick in this. You're going to stay there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see that a lot. Did, did you have any problems with that feeling uh, ghettoized or getting ghettoized? Or did you take that as an opportunity to elevate those? But, I mean, I think you did the books that you want. You did elevate. Them. Yeah, I but. mean, it, it was. Yeah, that is a real thing. And, and I think now there's a bit of a panic mm -hmm. uh, in, in a lot of media, not just comics, but sort of in general, where you have these characters who are well established and beloved um, and who come who are supposed to sort of represent a, a particular experience um, you know like uh, Blade for example is a great one you know like he's this amazing half vampire vampire hunter he's also black he's typically been written by white people mm -hmm. and now there's or Black Panther is another great example so now there's like okay we got to scramble yeah. and get black people on these books and then they you know you go out and recruit talent and now it's like please we need you on these books right and you know the person themselves might be like i have this great superman pitch and they're like no 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 yeah. we need you on blade else we're gonna get dragged on the internet yeah that's exactly it it's <laughs> you know? I, I call it an insurance policy they hire you as an it's insurance an policy. policy right that that's uh, what that's what it is it's like there was a guy who um i, I wish i could find the article it was years ago but there was a guy who uh, was teaching. Uh, he got hired by some university to teach African-American literature. And, but he, this guy happened to be a big Edgar Allan Poe fan and, and scholar. And after he'd been at this teaching for a few years, he's, he said, you know, he said, hey, I want to do this class on Edgar Allan Poe. And they were like, but you got hired to do this African-American literature thing. And he goes, yeah, but I, you know, I know a lot about Poe and I want to teach this Edgar Allan Poe class and they wouldn't let him do it. And what he said in the article was, it was then I realized that I was not a black professional, that I was professionally black. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oof, that is <laughs> succinct. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so um, that often happens, right? Where it's like, yeah. because what's interesting too about Black Panther particularly, I remember when Frank Miller sort of started to hit um, and I was buying Daredevil and he was starting to hit and he was put on a book because the book wasn't doing well. And, you know, and he got to come up and, you know, come up through that book. And I saw people come up through the ranks. When you look at Black Panther and who gets to do it, they usually have some success now in some other arena. Right. So they're yes. a filmmaker that gets to they That's already have a name. name. They, they already all, have a name. They already have a name. So they're not giving people an opportunity. It's not. And I've I've had this exact discussion with people in the industry, because you're exactly right. I mean, there, it used to be, and, and this was true when I got in, this, this was how I established myself, is that there were certain characters or fill-ins or mini-series that it was sort of understood like, okay, this is a good place for a, a complete 
novice, you know, like right. maybe they've written a few things or like, you know, like they've got a website where they've been putting up web comics or something like that. So they've done something to show, to, to att attract somebody's attention. Um, but they don't have an established track record. They're not a filmmaker. They don't have a Pulitzer, you know, like it's, it's, right. they're, they're new, they're early career. Right. And this is a place where you can sort of show your chops. And also, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a hazing because it's like, oh, great. I get a plastic man one shot. What the heck am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> right. But that's the challenge. That's the like, okay, how do you take this like yeah. extremely silly concept and make it something great? Yeah. Um, and we don't give those books as much to early career people anymore. It's, it's like, yes, we're going to, uh, you know, like we're going to do this much hyped, I don't know, you know, like Wakanda miniseries and to do it, we're going to bring in, you know, like people with, with Guggenheims. Right. I'm like, so what you're saying is, is that like to write the plastic man one shot, you have to have done nothing, but like, you know, like it, it, it's to, to get in now, especially I have to say, if you are from a minority background, it's like, you have to have already proven yourself Right. Like many, many times, you have to be <laughs> overqualified by an extreme degree. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it's like, on the one hand, it's amazing to have these intellectual heavyweights writing comics because it, it sort of elevates and mainstreams the entire medium. But by that same token, you shouldn't need to have won a genius award in order to write monthly comics, you know, yeah. like that, that shouldn't be a thing. No. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, even the solutions have problems, you know, like we should be making room yeah. for early career people from marginalized backgrounds exactly. to start out the way that white people start out, you know, like without saying like, oh, they're a diversity hire. I'm like, well, who is this guy who never finished high school, who was just a friend of a friend of whoever, like, Right. That, right. That's just nepotism. Like, you know, like that's not even a diversity hire. That, that's like just plain old nepotism. Right. And maybe they do a great book, but right, why sure. does that mean that this per other early career person can't also do a great book? You know, like it, it, it just. Yeah. It makes me a little crazy when I, I'm like, oh, crazy. so, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, Tana Housey Coates gets to write. It's like he, he couldn't be a bigger name. He couldn't right. be a bigger name. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, the, you shouldn't have to have achieved that stature. That's all I'm saying. To write flipping comic books, <laughs> like yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, that shouldn't be that shouldn't be the the you know the pole that people have to vault over. No, wait, you use the pole to vault over the. I don't know sports. I'm trying to make. <laughs> well, I don't know them either. So, so, <laughs> so it sounded good to me. So. You know what I'm trying to say? Like that should not that should not be the case. It shouldn't be that like if if you are black, you need to have had multiple awards and be mid-career and beloved universally to get a book like that. Whereas if you're a white dude, you just have to have like a website and be friends with somebody. That's not okay. That is not okay. That's not okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it just isn't. <laughs> so, all right. What, this is not what the show is supposed to be about, but I'm glad we talked about it. So, <laughs> so, so, so what was the first big book you were on? Was it? Oh, well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what it was. I, um, so J. Michael Straczynski of, of, of uh, Battlestar Galactica fame yeah. um, was on Superman 
and uh, and he had a, an illness and, and had to be off the book for a little bit and they needed somebody to come in and do like five issues of fill-in, basically. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't know why they, they chose me in particular. I, you know, like I had done a Vertigo book at that point. Uh, you know, I'd done a couple of one-shots and, uh, you know, like I'd done like a Batman one-shot or, you know, like not in the main series, but like the, the side series. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like, hey, would you come on and do a few fill-in issues of Superman? And I was like, Duh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's how, th- that's the first time that I got my name on a big book. And that's, this, that's again, that's, that's sort of the old way that you got in, is you sort of rode the coattails of somebody else. It's, yeah. So it's like, you know, I don't, you know, I just, I had my name on the spine of a book with J. Michael Straczynski on, on Superman. Right. So I could take that and be like, Hey, I can use this to pitch something else. So it was, yeah, I mean, really it was poor J. J. Michael Straczynski got sick and I got to take over his book mm, <laughs> for a few months. That was, that was kind of my big break, if hmm. you will. Yeah, and, sure. um, you know, and after that I started getting, I mean, it was, it was still largely fun side project types of things. Um, you know, I did mystic, which was a great, YA series uh, at, oh my God, that was Marvel, right? Yes, yes, it was a revamped cross-gen title for Marvel with the wonderful Janine Schaefer, again, you know, a a woman editor. Um, And that got nominated for an Eisner. Uh, Didn't win. (laughs) I just broke my Eisner losing streak last week. Oh, really? Ten years, five nominations, never won. Last week I won, finally, finally. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I had no idea. Yeah, Invisible Kingdom, my my sort of sci-fi epic with Karen Berger and uh, Christian Ward, who is my wonderful co-creator and artist. Uh, yeah, and it won for Best New Series. So yeah. Oh, congratulations! Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of my white whale. Sure, <laughs> I'm like, right. one day, one day, one day they'll yeah. just feel sorry for me and give me one. And I no, guess no, I'm sure they didn't feel sorry for you. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but that was you know that that was sort of the the arc of the thing. And then it was after, after Mystic got a nomination for an Eisner that Sana Aminat at uh, Marvel called me and said, hey, I have this idea. Should we do a new young adult girl Muslim superhero and give her her own book? And I was like, wow, we are going to get assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you sure? <laughs> Uh, and, um, and that, you know, that kind of was that, that was, that was the beginning of Ms. Marvel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, that was what completely changed my entire life. And that book was supposed to be like all the other books. Like it was, you know, it was going to be this kind of B-list thing. We were going to do 10 issues. Uh, we would, we would get nominated for stuff and not win. That's very right, typical. Sure. Yeah. You know, you get the also ran. Yeah. And then we would go back to doing what we had always done before. Like that's, that's what that book was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And it's instead through magic, it became an international phenomenon. Well, you say Still. through magic, but, but, <laughs> but there, you had a lot of ways into that character, right? I think there is something to be said when the expectations of the world are set that low, when everybody's already piling on you before the book even comes out, um, you, you get the underdog boost. 
you're like, we're going to make this something they did not expect to see. Sure. Yeah, I get that. Um, and it, uh, you know, every, everybody who worked on that book <clears throat> put their entire selves into the project. And, you know, like at, at that point, I mean, this was, you know, up until that point in the industry, my, my religion had been a profound, something that held me back in a major way. Mm -hmm. This is the era of, uh, you know, the Jillian's post and cartoons and uh, the uh, Charlie Hebdo stuff. Right. And, you know, you know, Islam was seen as being profoundly and irrevocably antithetical to art in general and to mm -hmm. comics in particular. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, like I had to sneak around, like I had to not say things. I had to be very careful how I presented myself when I got the superhero or the Superman gig. Um, there was a massive pile on by the right wing blogosphere. It was creeping Sharia. It was like, uh, you know, like all of that stuff. And, and, you know, like when you're early in your career, there, the, 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 the all publicity is good publicity thing is definitely not true. Like that stuff will get you fired. Right. Because they don't need you. Like if you are not making them money and you are just a liability, they will cut you loose. Right. Like at the end of the day, it's a business. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, for Sana, like she and I were sort of the only to, you know, like Muslim women working in the entire industry. And, you know, like it, it was, you know, and I'm like, this is, this is, this could wreck us. Like if this goes wrong, right. You're both screwed. Like, you know, this is, this is sort of a test case. It's like you said, you know, when, when something is new and it's people that you haven't seen before and it fails, people are like, Oh, see, it doesn't work. Like we're going to write right. off this entire category of people. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, like the pressure was very real. <laughs> yeah, of course. And uh, the fear of failure was very real. But like, you know, if, if you're sufficiently scared, that can be rocket fuel. Yeah. It can and be, in our yeah. case, it was rocket fuel. And, uh, you know, it took years off my life. But <laughs> like it was, it was a lot. Yeah. And that, yeah. And then you, you really took off. And then you, um, you um, not only did other big deal comics, but you also, um, you know, you're, you're an actor, bona fide novelist. Um, Somehow, yeah. And, and, and now, did that happen as a result of comics that you were able to do that? Or what, how did that? What? No, I think, you know, without comics, it would have happened earlier. My, my poor agent, I think, is, is somewhat resentful of the fact that I, I love monthly comics as much as I do because it means I am perpetually, perpetually behind on prose deadlines. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, you know, like, um, Alice the Unseen, my first, my first novel, I wrote in like a year, in like a gap between projects. And then Bird King, my second novel, took six years to write mm -hmm. because I had so many monthly comic book deadlines that needed to be done at a certain time that all right. of the long-term deadlines got pushed back. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like, I ironically started a lot of prose stuff before my comic book stuff took off, but okay. it took forever to finish because the short-term deadlines are always going to have to come first by necessity. Right. right. But yeah, so I mean, and now I'm back in that same, 
meat grinder with this third novel, which I was hoping to have mostly done by now. Uh, and instead, maybe we'll get done this year. Uh, because especially during a pandemic, when my you know, work time is severely reduced, the short-term deadlines will, will always come first. Like that's just, it's, that's just how it's going to be. So, yeah. I, Lana, let's talk a little bit. We haven't talked about how you work. So I want to talk about how you work. But one of the things that um, um, your, your TED Talk uh, was really great. Oh, and, thank you. Yeah, it really was. You said something there that had not occurred to me. And uh, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed that it hadn't occurred to me because it should have given the way that I, um, I think about stories and what I think they're for. I, I don't like so much dystopian stuff that we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's too much of it. But it was interesting what you said about it. And I thought, okay, that's completely a valid point. And can you talk a little bit about what you said about it? Because it, was, I, it, it, it changed my thinking a bit about it. Is this, the, um, was this from the Hadith? This uh, is, when the it, end of the world is upon you and you, you are holding a seedling in your hand, plant the seedling. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, when you, yeah. When you basically were saying that um, this, the, the, this younger uh, group coming up, these millennials coming up, that they have been taught that, well, the world sucks. It's a dangerous place. It's toxic. Everything's, it's, terrible. This is, everything's terrible. And so can you talk a little bit about that or? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I, I kind of sensed, I'm an elder millennial. I'm kind of a zennial. I was born in 82. Um, 82. I had a so, job yeah, in 1982. I had a job. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, now, it's, now it's the Gen Z kids. Now it's like, you know, right, I think yeah, millennials are used to being sort of like the picked on younger generation. That's true. That's true. It's inscrutable to the older generation. And now, like, you know, the tides have turned and now it's the Gen Z who are like the inscrutable younger generation. <laughs> um, I like Gen Z. I'm a big fan of Gen Z. I like, I, them. I like them, too. Yeah. I like them, too. They, um, yes, yeah. they have pluck. They are plucky. <laughs> yeah. They're not taking it. Whatever. They're not taking it. They are not taking it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And good for them. They yeah. shouldn't. They shouldn't no. have to. So it's, uh, you know, I, I kind of sensed... As we were, you know, Sana and I were kind of gaming out Ms. Marvel and what kinds of stories we wanted to tell, um, that there was, there was a bit of exhaustion setting in when it came to dark and gritty. Uh, for years, in, including the era that we talked about earlier in comics, like the, the cool, edgy thing to do was to be like, Batman is a sociopath. You know, everybody's a murderer. Everything sucks. They're dark. Right. Um, and, and the ironic thing was none of that helped us when the world actually went to heck. Right. You know, like things were deteriorating, wages were stagnating, uh, you know, civil rights had flatlined. So things were getting dark and yet none of this dark shit helped us at all. <laughs> you know, like it did not prepare us in any way. Yeah. Um, it, it just sort of reinforced cynicism and opting out being like yes everything is terrible and it's cool not to care and i'm like i think we can go another way mm -hmm. um and you know to go light bright funny uh optimistic but without pretending that everything was okay right. being like yes there are terrible things going on in the world and 
are, you know, your parents didn't deal with them. So I'm afraid it's all, all on you. Like, you know, we, we always acknowledge that that is real and it's there. Um, but you can snatch, but, but that joy, joy will help you that, that yes. having some kind of optimism that, that saying you're not going to opt out, uh, that even if the something that you do is small, it is 100% bigger than nothing. Um, right. that these were really, really, really important things to have in especially a YA book. Um, and now sort of, you know, like post Ms. Marvel, we, there are, thankfully, you know, there's been, there's been kind of a wave of books for younger readers read by adults as well, but, but, you know, targeted at younger readers that sort of take that point of view. Like it's, it's, it's no good to unplug and, and check out and be like, well, you know, like, yes, everything is terrible. Therefore nothing is my problem. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I think there's real value in that. And mm -hmm. at the time, it was kind of a risk to go back to that. And that, that's very traditional comics DNA. That's sort of like, yes, there are Nazis and we're going to write pulp. You know, it's, it's, it's going back to very old school comics concept that had just sort of been out of fashion for a while. But we're very, very true to sort of the original DNA of superhero comics. Um, and, and apparently the audience was, was ready for that. Well, you know, what's interesting is that that's actually one of the things I see culturally. Mm -hmm. um, is that I go, because, so between seventh and eighth grade, my best friend moved to the suburbs. And he was a white kid who moved to the suburbs. And, and so I spent a lot of time hanging out with him. And a lot of my friends, his friends became my friends. And they all had money and we didn't. And they all had, you know, all this stuff. So I got to see a lot of, a lot of how they lived and how they thought and their attitudes and their attitudes were very much, they had a lot of stuff. A lot of them had a lot of stuff. They had, Oh, this is our boat that we live by the lake and we can take it out. And wow. but they're all, they were always depressed. And I was like, <laughs> I don't understand what you're depressed about. Like I really couldn't figure it out. Like I go, you have everything. You have every opportunity, you know, you know, you're going to be able to go to school, you know, like, and your high school is insane. Like I would go to their high school. I'm like, this is your high school. Like I had never seen anything like this. And they were always depressed and everything was terrible and everything was bad. And that's the same attitude I see in a lot of stories now, a lot of TV, a lot. I'm, and it tells me who gets to write it. I go, that's why it's all the same. It's all yes. the same because of all the same people are writing it. And when all the same people are writing it and all the same people are, are evaluating that stuff and green lighting it, and they go, yeah, this seems just like life. And I totally agree with that point of view. And we all agree, don't we? And it seems Being universal. Yeah. Everybody in this room who's exactly the same agrees. Let's do this. And so then you end up with this homogenized thing that um, is supposed to be universal, but is, no, is not universal. And I think that often people who are actually on the bottom rungs of society for whatever reason actually lean more into hope than despair. Yeah. You have to, it's a survival mechanism. Exactly. And so it's like, why is everything so down? And it's like, because the world's awful. It's like, the world's like, not really awful for you. I don't understand why you think it's that way. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, what's you your know. problem? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, um, you know, I never really got, but, it, but actually when I, when I see all these things, I go, it's just telling me who gets to write this stuff. It's just telling me who gets these opportunities. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I think there's something to that. And, and I, I think... I think there was almost a sense that when you have 
so much stuff. I mean, actual stuff yeah. and non-material stuff, like opportunities and safety yeah. and stuff like that. It's cool to be depressed and cynical. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, not depressed. It's fashionable. I'm not saying like I'm not saying like the actual clinical chemical. No, I know. What I mean, you mean. Like, it's yeah, yeah. cool to be pessimistic. Maybe that's yeah. a better way to put it. Yeah, it's fashionable, it's cool, cynical, it's fashionable. and you know, yeah. It's like I have all of this stuff, and yet at the same time, <clears throat> I've thought so much about the world you know, that I'm a pessimist and I think right. everything is good and whatever, you know, like I, I think there's sort of a, there's, there's an unconscious attempt to sort of counteract that in, yeah. in some, in some way. <laughs> yeah. I also think that people instinctively or naturally need something to push against. They need resistance. Yeah. And when they don't have it, they'll create it. You invent it. When you don't have it, you invent it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think yeah. that is very true. Yeah. That's why rich guys climb, climb mountains. I'm rich. I oh gotta climb God. Everest. Yes. It's like, or, or go on these starvation diets. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Well, I gotta climb this mountain. Why? Well, because it's dangerous and I might die. Really? Try being black in the city and see how that works out. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Get pulled over by the police. See how that works. I, like, I don't need oh, to climb a mountain. I don't yeah. need the, the mountains that are right here. The yeah. Right here. I, I don't yeah. need the thrill. Try and be black and get a job in comics and see, yeah, like you don't need, you know, you know, I don't need that same kind of thrill, but they, they yeah, seem yeah. to because they have to push against something. You, you um, have to push against something. Yeah. 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 Um, my anyway. husband, my husband who, who uh, grew up in Cairo says the same thing, you know, like we'll, I'll be watching some YouTube video or whatever of somebody, you know, like the things that, that your middle-aged relatives post on Facebook, like watch this guy mountain bike down like a 45 <laughs> degree cliff or whatever. Sure. And, you know, like my husband wanders in and looks over my shoulder. I'm like, look at this. He's like, this is a white people thing. <laughs> he's like, yeah. he's like, this is, he's like, I don't need this stress. I have enough stress in my life. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it was like. Oh, you know, they died tragically by doing this crazy thing. It's like, well, yeah, that's, I don't know. It's sad that they died. Is it tragic? I don't know. <laughs> it's like, this is kind of what you signed up for. They decided to scale the side of a, you know, building or whatever you know I, I, I it's weird but it's it seems to be cultural but because yeah. because it's the mainstream culture the fact that it's culture disappears right but it is yeah. cultural not everybody does, has to do those things right yeah. not everybody thinks that they're cool or fun to do or worthwhile or you know that's cultural yeah, um yeah. and when you're on the outside you can see that it's cultural when you're on the inside it just, it's normal. That's what people do. It's like, that's not what people do. That's what you do. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you have a culture too. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Nobody is culture free. Yeah. Nobody, yeah. Is, nobody is a tabula rasa. That doesn't exist. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So let's talk about how you approach your work. So, so when you talk about creating a story or think about creating a story, how does it start? I know they can, stories can start in all kinds of places, but but um, typically, how does a story start, or how do you attack a story if it's an assignment or if it's a character? Yeah. How, how does how does how does Willow work? It it tends to be very different depending on the medium and whether it's uh, my IP or or corporate IP. You know, like a, um, you know something from Marvel or DC. Um, <clears throat> when for, for my stuff, which is typically prose, typically the stuff that I do that I own, that's, that's, you know, something that is not related to any superhero universe or anything like that. Um, the way that those 
ideas happen and then evolve is very different from when I'm doing company owned work. Mm -hmm. um, for novels, there's usually some kind of inciting incident where something happens in my own life and there's like a little rubber band snaps in my brain and I'm like, oh, and it's the seed of the story. And, yeah. and it kind of has to sit there and germinate for a little yeah. bit before there's anything to write down. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the, the book do you I'm have writing- any, How long does that take usually or do you know? It, it takes months, I think, typically. Like I'm, I'm trying to think of, in my own mind, like the story I tell myself is that I have this idea and I, I sit down and I start writing. Yeah. But when I'm honest with myself, and I really think about it, there's, there's usually months of germination before I mm -hmm. feel like, okay, there's a, there's a through line here. There's something to put on paper. With Aleph, my first book, the, I mean, the, the sort of the bare idea for a story came when I was living in Cairo and I was trying desperately to get news magazines and nonfiction publications to pay attention to the fact that uh, bloggers, and this is sort of pre-social media, um, b before Twitter became like a big thing, but, you know, sort of proto-social media was allowing political dissidents to organize in a way that state censors could not control, mm -hmm. and that there was very possibly a revolution brewing, and nobody wanted to pay attention. They were like, they have internet over there? Wow. <laughs> um, and I was like, are you... Oh my God, you're kidding me. Um, uh, and so, you know, like when the Green Revolution in Iran and the Arab Spring came around, everybody, you know, all these so-called experts in the West were kind of caught with their pants down um, because they were completely ignoring, uh, you know, like this whole subject. And I, you know, I just sort of started writing a, a novel with, and it's, it's a fantasy novel. It's, it's not about anything in the real world, but that was, that was sort of the seed of the idea. I was like, the weird thing, again, culturally about us, you know, in the West in general, and I think in the US in particular, is that we are more receptive to certain ideas through fiction than we are through nonfiction. Oh yeah, that's true. Um, we, we tend to close ourself, ourselves off against fact sets. Mm -hmm. um, if they do not align with whatever we already believe about the world. And, and this, this, this crosses ideological lines. You know, mm -hmm. like most of the people that I was trying to convince, like you should have people covering these nascent online movements in the Middle East. These were all liberals. Like these, these were not, yeah. these were educated liberals. These were not, and still that did not mesh with what they had in their head. So they ignored it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just sort of started writing a novel uh, <laughs> because, you know, like it's, it's, there's that openness, there's that openness to ideas in, in fiction that we do not have to fact. And, and so that's how that came about. And so there was really like, God, a couple of years between what was functionally the beginning of that idea mm -hmm. and the execution of the novel with the bird King. There was, there was at least that long. Um, the bird King is a historical fantasy set in 15th century Spain, um, and I, uh, I was, I was interested in that time period because it was sort of when two, two worlds that I live in overlapped and it was, it was the last time in history that those two worlds overlapped in that way. Hmm. Um, 
and uh, my, you know, my uncle is a professor of Spanish literature. He lives over there for part of the year. It's, you know, there's kind of a family connection. And so there were little bits of this idea building up over probably years before I sat down to write. And the novel I'm working on now, um, which is about watchmaking, because <laughs> uh -huh. I'm also a giant uh, traditional watchmaking nerd, mm -hmm. weirdly came to me when I was sitting at the table of some friends of mine who run a comic book shop in Long Island. And I was out there for a signing and I was sitting at their table and, you know, they were sort of going about their day and it was nothing related to watchmaking, but something about being in that environment flipped something in my brain. I was like, okay, now I have this story. And it was the, it was something about the interactions that we were having that kicked off on some subconscious level sure. <laughs> that I still don't have access to. Uh, the beginnings of this book. Whereas, you know, like if I'm working on something company owned, I start, I start with the structure. It's like, okay, we've got a character there. You know, this is the canon right now. This is the status quo right now. We have to end up over here. Mm -hmm. I need to get there in five issues. Mm -hmm. It's very mechanical. And, you know, like it's, it's funny because to a lot of people that would sound like, well, that doesn't sound very creative at all. That sounds boring. I'm like, no, actually, it's mm -hmm. very exciting to me because it's like solving an equation, yeah. you know, like you, I get it. you and all of the skills. Now we're going to bridge into the stuff I want to ask you. Okay. Like a lot of the skills that have helped me the most when I'm in that scenario where it's like, you need to create something in a certain amount of space. The, the story has to be this long. You know where you're starting out, you know where you need to end up and you need to get there in a certain number of steps. Um, I picked up in your class because so few people focus on structure as a critical element of emotional response in a story. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like I've, I've taken a lot of writing workshops and classes and things like that um, for lay people. I, I never actually went to school for writing, <laughs> but uh, well, me neither. You know, just so, 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 so somebody took one of my classes once and said they were nervous because they'd never taken a writing class. And I said, oh, neither have I. So, neither have I. <laughs> which is true. So, but go ahead. It's, it's, for you, it's, it's, it's intuitive. It comes from, from a primal source of, of creativity <laughs> or something. Um, but, you know, like it, it really is, it's as much about, where you put the emotional notes in a story as it is what those notes are. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. there, there really is something about the way we as humans experience emotions. Uh, you know, like grief. Grief is a story arc. There's, you know, there's shock, there's denial, there's bargaining, you mm -hmm. know, there's a breakdown and then there's acceptance. You know, like it's, right. there's an arc to grief, there's an arc to anger, there's an arc to love. And so actually structure has a huge, huge role to play in how we tell stories. And so I, I think really what comics are is, is figuring out how to elicit those responses along that arc so that it feels natural and satisfying. Um, and so I actually enjoy the mathematical nature of it. Like, okay, oh, wow, we, only, we have three issues to do this? Okay, so I'm going to have to compress this you know, the first act is going to have to be like this. We're going to have to end the second act approximately here. 
Um, you know, you have to take into consideration things like page turns. Yes. If you have a cliffhanger in one image, you have to have the resolution of the cliffhanger on a page turn because if it's on the same page, you ruin the suspense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I love how mechanical it is. It, it, it really, really does a lot for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. Uh, it's it's yeah. interesting that you, um, there are a couple things you said, and one of them is uh, this book you're writing about watchmaking, because I often think of story construction as, as being a watchmaker. I always say that I'm a watchmaker. So people will say, well, why didn't you like that thing? And I go, well, it doesn't work. And they'll say, yeah, but didn't you think, like if it's a movie, didn't you think the photography was beautiful? Didn't you think this? Didn't you think that? I go, you have to understand I'm a watchmaker. Does the watch keep yes. time? I don't, care, I don't yeah. care if it had a pretty face. I don't yeah. care. I'm yeah. a watchmaker. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they're like, yeah, but then look at the, the, the you know, the, the numbers on the, the look that, like that typeface is amazing. Does it keep time? That's all yeah. I care about. It doesn't matter. Yeah, if it's, it's if it doesn't, its function is purely decorative. Like right. it, it doesn't yeah. serve you in any way. Like exactly. it's not a tool. <laughs> yeah. So I, I uh, so I often say I'm a watchmaker, and I also talk about the construction of stories often as story math. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If there's a story math, right, mm -hmm. that things add up to other things, right? Yep. Well, this incident plus this incident gives you this incident or gives you this outcome. Um, right. Right. And if it doesn't add up, it's a false note. It's like, where did that come from? You said yes. this and this. Where did this come from? Where did I it go? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I thought I was building up to something. And then yet, and where's, where's the payoff? Yeah. Or there's payoff with no buildup. And you're like, huh? Right. How did yeah. we get here? Yeah. How did we end up here? Yeah. Or it's something out of the blue. Like, hey, you didn't see that coming. It's like, yeah, I didn't see it coming, but. It, but not I, in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> I could have never seen it coming. You know, it, it feels cheap. Yeah, yeah, it feels cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, it's just interesting that the, that you said those two things. It's like, hey, that's how I think. How it. how did you how did you come to this conclusion though? Because I have to say, it's rare. It's it's rare to encounter. I think writers who think like this. It's also, and this is what scares me more, rare to encounter editors. Who yes, think like that's, this, that's which true. means that if you need help getting over a hump, you, you, you know, you're trying to solve a problem, they don't always know how to help you. That's true. Because it's very focused on vignettes. It's very yeah. much like no plot is secondary. It's all quote unquote character beats. I'm like, you don't have character without incident. <laughs> right, right. No, it's true. Um, and so, you know, like you, I've, I've had, I've been in this position in the past where, you know, like I'm working with an editor and there's somebody I like and who I think is very intelligent and yeah. has things to say, but they don't know how to tell you what isn't working about the story mm -hmm. that, you know, they know how to talk about like what the character feels and, and, and maybe the, the, the atmosphere, they'll talk about atmospheric stuff. They don't know yeah. how to talk about mechanics because they were never taught. So I'm right. wondering how, how did you get to that point where not only can you see the gear train, but you can explain the gear train, <laughs> um, you know, without having been, you know, sat down at a course, you know, right. or, or like right. writing school or whatever. Right. I had the benefit of, uh, in some ways of being thrown away. What I mean is that um, when I was growing up in the seventies, people, I mean, maybe in, in a, fancy school they talked about dyslexia but they never talked about it i never heard about it i just thought i was not smart 
teachers also thought I wasn't smart. They didn't talk about dyslexia or whatever. So it was like, well, he doesn't seem to be able to spell and he doesn't seem to be able to, you know, do this or do that or memorize his timetables or whatever things I was having trouble with. But I also had this burning desire to, to, uh, to tell stories, particularly on film. Um, and it was the only thing that made me feel, um, it made me feel safe to do this. It made me feel like, I felt like I, I went to school and I felt stupid and I would come home and I'd watch a movie or, I, or something and I, um, it made me feel okay. Uh, and I also, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And, and I don't know where that came from. If I have anything, it, it isn't a natural, I don't think, ability to tell stories or to understand that. I have, I have two things. I, I was so curious about it that I spent endless hours studying it, breaking it down. And the other thing, and I wrote about this in the memoir I just wrote, the other thing I, I had was, for some reason, I trusted what I saw. Hmm. When I was a kid, we had, um, I, I guess I must have been in the third grade. In the third grade, my teacher, Miss Carvonen, I remember, the third grade, um, uh, we had an assignment and we were supposed to, there was that big paper that uh, like big rectangular paper that had a big blank spot at the top. Do they still use that paper? Do you know what I'm talking about? And then like, yes, line, I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 Line, yeah. yeah. So I remember that we had to write a story and then we had to illustrate the story and I don't remember anything about the story or whatever, but I remember that it, the, the story had fire in it. And so I had the fire and at the base I had blue and then I had some yellow and I had some orange or something. And I remember all the kids would say, uh, they said, uh, what is that? And I said, well, that's fire. And they said, well, fire is red. I'm like, no, no, it's not. And they're like, no, fire is red. And mm -hmm. everybody said that. And even the teacher said, what's that? And I said, it's fire. No, fire is red. And, and I was like, have you ever looked at fire? Like, if you, like, <laughs> like really looked at it. Have you looked at it? And for some reason, they couldn't sway me. And I actually found that to be in my life a pretty strong. So people are like, how could you be so confident? I'm like, I believe what I see. You're open to facts. Yeah. That, that I, fact filtering that we were talking about. Well, well, somehow, I'm, well yeah. it's, it's not, it's not even that it's, I don't, I, I can't explain it because maybe what I'd see wouldn't be a fact. Right. I was reading something that was written by the Dalai Lama and he was talking about the Buddhist method and the scientific method. And he said, and he's very into science, the Dalai Lama, loves science. He said, the scientific method and the Buddhist method is almost exactly the same. He said, so like if you have a pupil and you're teaching them, you don't expect them to believe everything you say. You expect them to go out and test it and see if it's true, right? He said, and he goes, it's just like science. He goes, but here's the thing, here's the difference. The difference is that in Buddhism, the subjective experience matters. So if you experienced it, that is also evidence. It's not in science, mm -hmm. but it is in Buddhism, right? So the thing is, it's like, if I see the fire and it's blue, that I'm, I trust that. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So I, that, I mean, if, if I came with any, any gift, it's that. Wow. Right. And, and so, so I just trusted what I saw. And, and, and I looked for a long time at how stories 
worked. I just looked at I, and and it was it was years and years and hours and hours because it was the place where I was safe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the place where I felt competent. It was the place I felt like I I understood this. There was a guy that used to go to my barber shop, um, uh, and uh, he was an older guy who was friends with Jimi Hendrix's father. He's like, oh yeah, I know Jimi Hendrix. I know him when he was a kid. And we would talk about him and he'd say, you know, I would go over there and Jimmy would be playing the guitar all the time, all the time. And he said, I used to just look at him and think, what's going to happen to this poor kid? That's all he does. Stories were my guitar. It's all I did. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it, it's uh, people, it looks like a natural thing, but it really is hours and hours. And, yeah. yeah. It's hours. And, and then I would, uh, as a teenager, I started going to the movies. It's funny. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a rated R movie. Like, <laughs> I would just go to the movies, and yeah. they would let me in. I had no concept that they wouldn't let me in, and I think I had so much confidence about it. They were just like, yeah, I guess this 12-year-old can see this. <laughs> like, and I would just go, and I was studying. And I used to sit in the movies, and I would, um, um, I would watch the movie, and back then, you could just sit in the movie all day long if you wanted. They wouldn't kick you out. And so I would watch it a few times. But after a couple of viewings, a couple of screenings, I would then start paying attention to the audience more than the movie to see, oh, this is the part where they laugh. Are they going to laugh here? Why did they laugh? Why do they always laugh? Oh, this is the part where they're scared. Are they going to be scared? Why are they always scared? And I started that it was, it, and it was hours and hours. I, I, I can't even calculate how many hours I spent thinking about this stuff. Um, and so um, when I saw the consistency, like, oh, this is consistent. This works. This is consistent. I trusted what I saw. This is consistent. This works. This is consistent. This works. Um, this is how you get people to feel things. I see that. Okay, that makes sense. And so... Um, that gives me a kind of when people are like, are you sure about that? It's like, really, I have put this to the test. And also, <laughs> I'm also used to being wrong. That's one of the things dyslexia gives you. Interesting. You're used to being wrong. So being wrong doesn't scare you. But what it does mean is that you go, well, I could be wrong. So you poke holes in it yourself to figure out, am I right? Before you start telling people. Right. You don't want to be embarrassed like you were when you were a kid. You don't want to feel stupid. Right. Yeah. So so I, I if a dyslexic tells you something they know is true. Believe me, they have put it through the test. They have field tested that thing. Yeah, they have. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't I, I, I work with uh, some dyslexics and, I, and uh, I work with a guy who's dyslexic and he says the same thing, which is it is awful to go through as a kid. But when you get through it, you wouldn't trade it. Wow. You wouldn't trade it. You'd like, oh, it, it gave me this. It gave me this. It gave me that. I see differently. Wow. I connect things differently. Um, and that's an advantage. And I think that actually in a pre-literate world, people are just as smart before they wrote things down, right? In a yeah, pre-literate yeah. world, dyslexia would not present itself in any way that anyone would notice except yep. that dyslexics would have a different way of solving problems. Mm-hmm. And they keep finding out there's more dyslexics than they thought. So it's like yeah. a huge percentage of people. So 
some it's part of human equipment and maybe we need these different ways of thinking in order yep. to solve problems. And so um, I think it actually is, can be an advantage um, to have a thinker like that in a group. And it only becomes a disability when we introduce um, a literate world. I think our system, for instance, um, as it was explained to me, the reason that uh, like a kid with dyslexia will um, confuse a lower case Q and a P or a mm -hmm. lower case B and a D is because for, for a dyslexic, it's like nature. So if I, I have this remote control here, if I turn it this way, it's still a remote control. If I turn it this way, it's still a remote control. If I turn it this way, it's still a remote control. So in the oh mind of a dyslexic, goodness. right? In the mind of a dyslexic, you go, it's a this line with a bump. Same thing from a different perspective. Yeah, right? So if we had a completely different way of writing a lowercase d and b, you wouldn't have that problem. And, yeah. so, and so it's a flawed It's system. a design flaw. Right. <laughs> It's a design flaw. Oh my flaw. God, that's amazing. Yeah, it's not a disability of the dyslexic. It's a design flaw it's in the system. It's a design flaw of the language. Yeah. yeah. Oh my Lord, that is brilliant. Oh my God, this, is, this has shifted my thinking. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about this. In this particular way, it struck me the way you said that you see things differently and that that helps uh -huh. because I... Because because of, because of the strabismus, I cannot see the third dimension. Like, I know things intuitively have three dimensions because I can pick up a, you know, a ball and feel that it's round, it's that right. it's flat. Um, but I don't see them that way. You know, like, it, it, it's all, it's flat. I don't see depth. I hear it. I hear it. Okay. So, like, okay. you know, I, things sound closer okay. or further away. So, like, you know, like, for me, relative size is the same in a painting that is flat as it is me looking out my window or, you know, like stuff on a table. Like when people try to describe to me like how a, a mug would look and they're like, oh, but you can see this and this. Like, I'm like, I don't understand right. how that would be. To me, it's like, you know, like it's a circle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's got lines coming down. Right, sure. Um, the way visually that I operate I think helps making comics because that like, it's very similar to the way that I see it. it I don't need to flatten anything. It's already flat. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. There's this sort of, and you know, I never, I never really thought about it in those terms because you know, to, to me, it's, it's always just been, I like the way that I see, but I'm frustrated by the way that I look. Because, you know, it does impact social interactions so okay. much. Okay. But, uh, you know, the, the fact that all of these ways that the human brain can be different are not necessarily flaws. I mean, you know, sometimes right. they are. Like, I'm right. not going to sit here and be like, yes, I, I have galaxy brain because I, I can't see in 3D. <laughs> um, but that the plasticity of the human mind is at odds with the concreteness and immovability of human systems. Mm -hmm. And the way that you put it really, really rings true to me on some level from, you know, from, slightly from a slightly different perspective, but, but based on my own experience as well. Oh. 
but I'd never, I'd never heard somebody put it quite the way that you put it. <laughs> oh yeah. That, that, that's the way it was put to me. And it made perfect sense. It's like in the natural world, you turn something around. It's the same thing. It's the same damn thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's why dyslexics are confused. It's like, how are you telling me this is different? And that's why they can't remember. Um, and that's the other thing about dyslexia I have to say is that, um, it's a very cause and effect kind of thing. So like, for instance, I, I can't play chess and I can't play cards. Like I'm not interested either, by the way, but uh, I would look kind of like to play chess, but the problem is I can't remember how the pieces go in chess. And the reason I can't remember is because it seems um, random. It seems arbitrary. Hmm. Right. So it's like, why does it move like an L? Well, it just does. I'll never latch on to that. Mm-hmm. I'll never remember that. Right. I mean, it took me years. I understand now. Oh, that's, I think it's the night that moves like an L. Right. So like, I kind of know that, but that was years of like, okay, I guess that's what it, but I don't know why. And so it doesn't make sense to me. If you tell me why it will always make sense to me. I'll remember it forever. If you tell me why. Um, and so that's why, for instance, when I'm teaching, I don't just say, do these things. It works. I'm like, this is why this works. This is why people have an emotional response or this is why, right? The why is very important. The why tells you how. Most people want to know how. It's like, no, why Why will tell you how. how. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's what people don't understand. it's, um, It's like, for instance, how do you make um, something a surprise in a comic? Well, people flip pages. Right, 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 right. right. You know, it it has its own internal logic because it's a book that's, you know, that's visual, that's read like this. And so, you know, you know, okay, I've got a, and it can be difficult to write this way where you go, well, I want this on the page flip. Uh, And so it's like, because this is how it works, that's why you have to save your surprise to write. For the page turn. For the page turn. That's why. (laughs) That's why. Right, like, why is the surprise always over here? Well, because of the, because it's like, it wasn't there a second ago, and then you yeah. see the page and it is there. That's why it's a surprise. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the why always tells you how, how and I yeah. find that most people want to know how and not why, and, and it's the wrong question. Oh wow, yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah, they want to start with the wrong end of the question. I mean, I think that's a flaw in the way that we were taught math. Also, we oh, were never sure. taught the why. We're taught right. the how, you know, right. memorize. Like to this day, I could not tell you what algebra does. Like I have no idea. I just right. memorized the formula. I'm like, right. this is how you get the result. Like you plug this in here, you plug this in here, and this comes out. What does it do? I have no idea. It was never explained to me. Yeah. I actually didn't know this was a thing until I had read about it in this book, uh, Dyslexic, Adva- Dyslexic Advantage. And I didn't know about this. When I was a kid, I was, I was good at math. I'm terrible at math. And, and, but I got terrible at math because uh, dyslexics have a, uh, often can look at something and go, well, that's the answer and know it. I don't know how. Mm-hmm. And I could do that. And I would get the right answer. And they're like, well, you didn't say, you didn't show us the work. The show work. work. Yeah. And that threw me off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah All of a sudden yeah, yeah. I was horrible. But I'm like, is the point to get to the right answer? Or is the point to, like, if I have the right answer, why do you care? What does it matter? <laughs> what does it care? That's a big dyslexic question. What does it matter if it's right, if it's this, if it's that? But I, I remember that specifically. Like, I used to be good, and they threw me off. Wow. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? 
Like, yeah. oh, it's just this. Okay, I get it. You know, it's like- If you can't show your work, then it's, yeah. Oh, yeah, but it's like, but then it was like, well, how, why do I have to do that? Right, right. Yeah, well, this right. is how I've you do it. I've already got the answer. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> this is how you do it. It's like, yeah, but why do I need to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So, um, yeah, I, anyway, I see that as a gift. So, um, we have a little bit of time left. So, you, did you, you have, I want to answer your questions, too. So, yeah. I have more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's see. Well, here's, here's a why question. Okay. <clears throat> why do you think it is that story structure, outside of film, I think in film this is still a thing, but in, in literature, It's in the not book in world, film either. People, it's not in film they, either. They talk a big game, but it's... They talk a big game, but they don't actually know. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, that would explain a lot of stuff that ends up on yeah. screen. Yeah, yeah. You're like, what did I just watch? <laughs> yeah. So why do you think it is that we've begun to neglect structure as an essential component of storytelling in favor of tone, atmosphere, aesthetics, character, all that other stuff? It's easier. Well, why have we neglected the guts of the watch for the watch face? <laughs> because it's easier. Right? It, it allows everybody to play. Yeah. Right? Oh, man. Right? Oh, man. It's easier. That's depressing. That, uh, that, other, <laughs> it's like, that other stuff is hard. It seems technical. It's, you know, um, and, and it's, it's harder. And it's, it's, it's also not presented as a natural thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. everything that I would teach about story structure is just kind of like what you said about grief having an arc. And, like, story structure is not a made-up thing. It's an, no, observed, it's, it's an observed thing. It's a natural thing. Um. Also, the other thing is, I think, I've talked about this before, but human beings, I think, are very impressed with themselves. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're very impressed with the things that we invented. That's why we're more impressed with language than with stories. Interesting. interesting right? Interesting. Right? Like, I'm a big proponent of, I'm, I, and, and I don't think it's less than to do this, but, but here's what I mean. Shakespeare is almost impenetrable for me. I'm not the only person. I'm not the only person. And people won't admit that, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I'm the smart. Yeah. Right? And also you have to be smart. And there's a whole thing that comes with this. Like, that has nothing to do with intelligence. No one talks like that. Right? That's not intelligence. It's no one talks like that. Mm -hmm. We are so into the language that we hide the stories now in the language. So you have to be able to penetrate this language to get the stories. That's to ridiculous. get the story. That's ridiculous, right? If it was in ancient Greek, we wouldn't have any problem translating into a language we all understood. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> right. So why not tell those stories and use a language that is accessible? Mm-hmm. Right? It's because... We're it would expose the fact that they don't know what story they're trying to tell. I think. Right. I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. But also, I think that we really do reward people for, for either having an ability to understand that arcane mm -hmm. language or to working hard enough to unlock the secrets inside that language. Um, but 
having an understanding of story. No, but nobody cares about that. That's that because that comes with the human equipment. The language doesn't, but the storytelling does. Right. So what's interesting to me about stories is I can hear a story from China, translate it and understand the story. Oh, that makes sense. I can understand a story written 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. Oh, that makes sense. And this guy was upset because, oh, and she's mad because, right? I get it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the languages don't, aren't even spoken anymore. Right? <laughs> right? Right? But, yeah. but So stories transcend language, but somehow we've put language in front. And I think it's because we're impressed with ourselves. Interesting. Uh, we like our own invention more than we like what comes naturally with our human equipment. Interesting. Yeah. But it so, does seem to be, I, I don't know if it's become artificially harder because it's, it's, it's something that we've neglected or, or what, but it, it, it seems like at least in sort of American pop culture, we're losing or at least not trying very hard to tell stories that have that natural arc in them that it is it is all kind of like there's there's some you know kind of hastily cobbled together first act and 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 then we're going to go over here and then oh who's this new person oh they're here to deliver the third act and we've never (laughs) met them before (laughs) like what what's happening like why why are we, because I agree with you, there is, there is observable story structure in the world and you can look back through time and read stories from thousands of years ago and be like, yes, I understand why this person is upset that their best friend, you know, slept with their wife because I would be upset too. You know, like it's, right. it's, it's, it gets to something, I hesitate to use the word universal because that gets into dangerous territory, but it, it's something that you can grasp across time yeah um and yet now we hide it all under aesthetics like like it's it's the aesthetics are the point the story is no longer the point right and it seems an awful lot like i mean like maybe we all can intuitively tell stories like that but it sure seems like we've lost the knack on some level or at least we don't care to the extent that we don't we don't reward it i i don't reward it yeah I, um, I had a girlfriend who was a playwright and she had studied playwriting in school and, and she was always asking me story questions. She says, oh, it never came up when I was studying playwriting. Story never came up. Oh, God, that is tragic. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> never came up. Never talked about it. It's completely ignored. So, uh, and I think it's because uh, for some people it can very diff- be very difficult to understand and it's not so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not the sexy part. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's real work. It's, yeah. it's just work. It's yeah. just the work. It's just rolling up your sleeves and doing the work. Yeah. And, that, and I think people think that translates into something that seems mechanical mm-hmm. on the other end. Right. Like, oh, the, when I hear rejections to story structure, it's often that people think it's going to produce something mechanical, produce something artificial. Um, when, in fact, what I find is the other thing is true. The opposite is true. Yep. 
Um, but uh, or they see something done poorly and they see that's why I don't like story structure. When they introduced that gun in the first act, I knew it was going to come back. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So it's yeah. like, yeah. right. So it's like, well, yeah. If you introduce it, it has to come back. If you can surprise people about how it comes back, the technique is, you know, the, the structure is not the problem. The execution may it's be the, the execution. problem. Yeah. 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 But yeah. people often don't understand that. <laughs> I, we're yeah. gonna have to go because uh, uh, this we have a hard out. But I, I uh, really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, this was really great. I, I really appreciate you, you uh, taking the time to do this. I know it's hard under these conditions, but uh, I really appreciate. Oh, thank it. you for having me. I I I, I always love chatting with you um, about craft. Yeah. I uh, I never come away from one of these conversations without having learned something that uh, I hadn't taken into consideration before. So thank you. Oh yeah. Thank you. It was really great. I I learned a lot too. It was really great talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Have have a good rest of your day. Thanks for watching. You are a storyteller, part of the co-loop podcast network. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com. 